This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Donald Rumsfeld, a man who served as defense secretary in two separate administrations and who is best known for overseeing the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq in their early years, has died at the age of 88. Republicans hailed Rumsfeld as a patriot and staunch conservative. But his legacy will forever be marred by the disastrous wars that the U.S. engaged in following the September 11th attacks in 2001. Even as Rumsfeld is laid to rest, U.S. troops are withdrawing from Afghanistan, the Taliban is rapidly encroaching on Afghan provinces, and Afghan civilians say they are taking up arms to defend their nation, all indicators that a new civil war may be at hand. My guest is Phyllis Bennis, director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's the author of numerous books, including Understanding ISIS and the New Global War on Terror and Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan. She just wrote a piece in The Nation magazine called War Criminal Found Dead at 88. Welcome to the program, Phyllis. Good to be with you, Sonali. So I mentioned he, Rumsfeld, was defense secretary under two administrations. So that was Gerald Ford and George W. Bush. But it was Bush's tenure, his tenure under Bush, that he was best known for. How much blame for the disasters in Afghanistan and Iraq do you lay specifically at Rumsfeld's feet? You know, there's little question that Rumsfeld was one of, or perhaps the biggest cheerleader for the war, particularly in Iraq. The war in Afghanistan was a kind of gateway war, if you will, towards the war in Iraq. There was, this was something that Rumsfeld had wanted to do for a long time, but he was part of a cabal of neoconservative ideologues uh, who wanted war against Iraq, who wanted to wait for a moment that would allow them this kind of extreme activity. Uh, and they found it in 9-11, so that within hours of the attack, we know that in that first meeting at the White House, very early in the morning, less than 24 hours after the attacks had occurred in Washington and New York, Rumsfeld was the one at the meeting with then President George W. Bush, who said, what are we waiting for? Why don't we just go to, into Iraq now? And the answer from the others around him were various examples of, well, right now the, the public opinion is focused on Al-Qaeda, so we should really go to war against Al-Qaeda first. It was that kind of discussion. No one said we shouldn't go to war in Iraq because Iraq had nothing to do with these attacks, which would have been true. So the lies that came to characterize the war in Iraq in particular, but also the war in Afghanistan, began within hours of the attacks themselves. And why was Rumsfeld so hell-bent on Iraq? What was his motivation? You, you know, we don't really hear, the, um, hear, hear as much about the, that cast of characters anymore that included Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, uh, of course, Bush himself and others. Yeah, they were part of a, a group in the 1980, uh, sorry, in the 1990s that was called, well, the initials were PNAC, the Project for the New American Century, which was the kind of ideological groundwork for the neoconservative movement in the United States. And it called for a reassertion of untrammeled and unlimited use of, uh, of, of U.S. military force around the world asserting the United States as the head of a global empire, making no claims about needing the United Nations, ignoring international law, 
no interest in coalitions. This was about untrammeled uh, US power. The specifics around Iraq had to do with a number of things uh, that had to do with the expansion of US power, the creation of military bases. You know, think about locations, Sonali, when you look at a place like Iraq, the middle of the Middle East, the Middle East being the best place in the world if you want one place from which you can attack Africa, you can attack Asia, you can attack Europe, and you can attack all of those oil-rich uh, countries surrounding you in the Middle East itself. So all of that, plus the expansion of bases, plus, of course, the question of control of oil, were all at stake in a war with Iraq. The war in Afghanistan, ironically, was a war that was just kind of a sideline. And what it meant was that the, the thousands of, tens of thousands of Afghans who were killed in that war died for nothing but a political concern that if these warmongers went to war first against Iraq, they wouldn't have the same level of public support as they did eventually by going to war first against Afghanistan and claiming that this was somehow a war for justice. They would never say, of course, that this was straight up a war for vengeance and to prepare the way for a war in Iraq. This was not a war for justice. It was definitely a war of vengeance. And we'll talk very soon about Afghanistan, considering that it is in the news as U.S. troops withdraw. But staying on Iraq uh, briefly, the human toll of the Iraq war um, was so staggering. And how do you link Rumsfeld's role with A, civilian casualties, and B, the torture that was enacted in gruesome ways in places like Abu Ghraib prison. You know, Sonali, the, the lead sentence of the obituary that I wrote for Rumsfeld in The Nation a few days ago started with precisely that question. It said, unlike the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, Afghans, and so many others killed in the wars he launched and in the torture cells he oversaw, Rumsfeld died peacefully at home. Unlike all of them who died under torture, who died on the battlefield and died in their own homes when they were attacked uh, despite being civilians. Rumsfeld's direct involvement, of course, he was the Secretary of Defense throughout the Afghan, the early years of the Afghan war and the Iraq war. He was the one not only cheerleading for the war, but orchestrating it, arranging for how many troops would be sent to Iraq, would be sent to Afghanistan, how many planes and what weapons would they carry? Would they carry giant bombs that would kill huge numbers of people at one time? Or would they carry smaller, more targeted weapons? The answer was all of them. We will target all of them. When he was asked early on about the numbers of civilian casualties, this was back in early 2002, just in the, in the first months of the war in Afghanistan and before the US even began the war in Iraq, Someone asked Rumsfeld, a journalist asked him, what about the civilian casualties? And without missing a breath, he said, we don't do body counts. We're not interested in numbers. Well, of course, they were very interested in body counts of US soldiers. Those body counts, luckily, were very, very low relative to other wars that the US has fought. But in terms of taking responsibility for even the, the military casualties in Afghanistan or Iraq, let alone the civilians who suffered so inordinately in both countries, 
The U.S. under Donald Rumsfeld, the Pentagon under his leadership, did not try to track uh, those viol- those those uh, um, civilian deaths. They did not try to track the humanitarian costs. When the pressure got too great and people came in demanding that the U.S. take some responsibility for the rising numbers of civilian casualties and do what they could to at least pay some kind of compensation, reparations to families who had lost their breadwinner, aside from the emotional traumas facing children, facing everyone left behind, there it was a grudging, minimalist approach that, well, if we have to, we'll do something, but don't bother me with such details. So there's no question that for Rumsfeld, the human cost in Iraqi lives, in Afghan lives, was simply not a factor uh, to be to be included. And he set the terms for secretaries of defense that followed him, who took a similar situation. It's fine to lie your way into war. You can lie about weapons of mass destruction that, of course, did not exist. You can talk about, you can lie about uh, yellow cake uranium from Niger, which did not exist. You can talk about Iran, uh, Iraq, sorry, Iraq, buying aluminum tubes that could, quote, only be used for nuclear weapons, which isn't true. You can have all of those lies to base your justification for war. And if you play your cards right politically, you'll get away with it. Let's talk about Afghanistan. The Biden administration announced that it would be withdrawing troops. Uh, of course, the Trump administration before that had uh, announced that the U.S. would be ending that war. The generals, I'm not sure how happy or unhappy they are. And it was really interesting to see just this week that the U.S. abandoned Bagram Airfield, um, this big sprawling airbase, and did so apparently in the dead of night, not even, as if reports are uh, true, not even coordinating with the Afghan commander who was taking over. Uh, about a thousand U.S. troops left this airbase. Um, is the U.S. actually fully withdrawing from Afghanistan, or are we going to essentially see a war with proxy mercenaries? Because we know that there are contractors, private contractors, that will remain there. Well, I would say the answer, Sonali, is yes and yes, and we're not quite sure. Hmm. So it does seem that all of the uh, official ground troops, combat troops, which is somewhere between 25 and 3,500 U.S. troops, are being withdrawn and will probably be almost all out within the next couple of weeks. They are leaving behind, officially, somewhere between 600 and 800 Uh, Marine guards at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, a significantly higher number than the usual Marine detachment that's at every embassy, but it's not a qualitative difference. It's bigger, uh, but we'll see whether that remains simply guarding the embassy or something else. On the question of the contractors, there's about 18,000 military contractors working in Afghanistan, 6,000 of whom are U.S. citizens. Many of them, of course, are Afghans. Many are from other countries. And there have been different answers given by uh, the Pentagon, by the White House and others about whether all of them are being withdrawn. There's been several reports that, yes, they are all being withdrawn. There's another report that says that some smaller numbers, something like two to 3,000 who work on aircraft 
um, uh, keeping the aircraft intact, uh, doing repairs, that sort of thing, will be left behind for a couple of months, maybe up until the original Biden deadline, which is September 11, uh, reminding people, I suppose, that this war supposedly was in response to the, the attacks of September 11 of 2001, but that they will be remaining a small number to keep the Afghan Air Force flying. That's not clear. Other reports have said all of them will be withdrawn. Some will be re, uh, repositioned in neighboring areas, which can mean quite far away, actually. It can mean places like Qatar, which is about an eight-hour flight away. So how useful that would be in keeping local aircraft flying, that remains to be seen. There have also been negotiations underway between the U.S. and officials in uh, several of the surrounding countries, including Tajikistan and others, uh, to see if they might be open to allowing uh, U.S. troops to be deployed, to be allowing U.S. planes to be based there. All of that remains unclear. The official position from the White House is that they are arranging beyond the horizon uh, placement of troops and planes that could be brought back uh, if there is anything that happens that could uh, that that could result in uh, a, in a threat to U.S. troops, U.S. Uh, the U.S. embassy, or to any other U.S. forces in the region or anywhere else. The problem is there are also these other uh, questions that have arisen about who is actually being withdrawn and who will uh, who will remain. The question of the so-called separate war, separate from the official Afghanistan war in which it's the U.S. backing up the Afghan government against the Taliban. That's relatively straightforward. Supposedly, there is another war underway, an anti-terrorism war between the United States and some combination of al-Qaeda and ISIS. One of the questions that remains is, are CIA agents, special forces, pilots, U.S. planes, bombers, and drones, particularly drones, are they remaining to carry out this other secret war in Afghanistan, who is secret only to us? It's not secret to the people of Afghanistan, where civilians continue to die as a result of those same planes being flown by the same pilots, by the same country, against the same civilians. Just supposedly now, it's different than the Afghanistan war. This is now a war against terrorism. So all of this remains very, very unclear. We should note that just a couple of days ago, the New York Times reported <clears throat> that the new commander who will be in charge of the situation in Afghanistan over the next couple of months, uh, even while virtually all the troops are out, this is General McKenzie, who will be based at CENTCOM in Florida, Central Command. Uh, in Florida, that he will, quote, assume the same authorities that General Miller had. General Miller is the current commander in Afghanistan. He will assume the same authorities General Miller had to carry out airstrikes against al-Qaeda, ISIS, and in very limited circumstances, Taliban fighters. Now, that's the New York Times two days ago quoting the Pentagon. So you tell me, does that mean all the troops are coming out? Does that mean maybe all the, quote, troops on the ground, but we're not going to count pilots or we're not going to count those who operate the drones? So the bottom line is we don't really know. 
What about this story about Afghan civilians taking up arms against the Taliban, that they're, you know, with the Taliban encroaching upon a number of provinces. Um, it's not quite uh, the state that it was in 2001 when the United States first invaded Afghanistan, but this seems to be the start of yet another potential civil war in Afghanistan. It's not impossible. I think it would be a mistake to see it as a new civil war. This would be, in a sense, a continuation of the existing civil war. What the U.S. has been fighting in, in Afghanistan, is essentially a civil war. It was a war between the Taliban, which had won the civil war of the 1990s. They won that war in 1996 against another set of warlords known as the Northern Alliance. That set of warlords was backed by India and some other regional countries, as well as the United States that fought against the Taliban who were backed by Pakistan and some other forces in the region. So this was already a civil war that the US entered on one side. The civil war side of it had ended largely in 1996 when the Taliban won that war. And they won it partly militarily and partly because they convinced large numbers of Afghans that they would end the civil war. The civil war that had begun in the early 1990s or even really by 1989 or 1990, had devastated Kabul and, and wreaked massive destruction on lives and towns, villages across the country. So there was a certain amount of support for the Taliban early on, not because of the extremism of their, uh, their definitions of religious law, but despite that, and we should note that the, the positions on religious law, the repression of women, et cetera, was not really all that different in the Taliban's years than that supported by the Northern Alliance warlords, one of whom, for example, a guy named Gulbadin Hekmatyar, uh, who was backed by the United States in the 1970s uh, and 80s against the Soviet Union, uh, was, is widely credited with having inventing the horrific practice of throwing acid in the face of young women who had the temerity to say that they had the right to an education. So this is somebody who was the anti-Taliban uh, side, not part of the Taliban, part of the so-called good guys that are fighting against the Taliban. So it, the situation in Afghanistan has been a very, very complex one. And the reality is that the, the war is almost certainly going to continue in some form. We should note that the reports are that many of the areas that uh, have seen the Taliban re-emerging in the last couple of months and taking control in some areas, simply being a visible presence in some areas, has in many of those cases happened without military engagement between the two sides. Sometimes by negotiations, Taliban officials have negotiated with local leadership, sometimes religious leaders, sometimes village leaders, tribal leaders, and they've worked out some kind of an arrangement. In others, there has been some fighting and the Taliban has either won in some short-term fighting or in some cases, there was a report last night about a thousand uh, uh, soldiers of the Afghan army who simply put down their weapons and fled uh, with no fighting, turning over the area where they had been stationed to Taliban troops. So there's little doubt that the Taliban is going to emerge with far more power than they've had in this period. But there are numerous questions that remain, one of which, of course, is 
how much have they changed in the last 20 years? Right. Certainly the, the hardliners that are based in Qatar carrying out the negotiations with the, the Afghan government, negotiations that have been largely stalled for the last several months, uh, had not seemingly changed very much. But inside the country, people that relate to the Taliban, that are part of the Taliban, this is their country. They've seen the costs of this war. They've seen what's going to be needed to even begin the process of rebuilding the country after these two decades of devastation. So the notion that they may well be willing to, uh, to change their positions, to negotiate more with local leaders, to take a more nuanced position uh, towards what rights women may have, what rights of education, et cetera, I think that's quite a likely possibility. We don't know for sure. But I think that some change is quite likely to happen. Phyllis, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll post a link to your piece about Donald Rumsfeld in The Nation magazine from our website. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Sonali. Good to be with you. My guest has been Phyllis Bennis, director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's written several books, including Understanding ISIS and the New Global War on Terror and Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan. Her article in The Nation is about Donald Rumsfeld, and it's called War Criminal Found Dead at 88. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and watch all our video interviews. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.